When I first began to put together this third lecture, I entitled it Associational, Associationalism, hard word to say, Associationalism in the Confession of Faith. The more I worked through this, I decided to add a second part to that, and it's called a Confession of Faith in Associationalism. And so the first part of this lecture this morning is going to deal with associationalism in the confession of faith. The second part, the confession in associationalism. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Let's pray together before we begin. Father, once again this morning, as we consider together our life as churches within an association, Father, truly we want to live together in a way that shows your glory. We want to live together in a way that shows to the world that we do serve a king who is risen, who has given to us all the gifts necessary to conduct our churches in those ways that you have ordained. And so I pray this morning, Father, that you would enable us to understand even better the role that each of us as individual churches play within the association and how that association is to increase our love and our edification for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After bringing cordial greetings to various members of the church in Rome here in chapter 16, the Apostle Paul, probably writing from the church in Corinth, instructed the members of that church to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, a holy kiss, or in fact just a kiss, was a common mode of of salutation in the ancient Near East, and it would have been understood in that way when the Apostle Paul wrote these words. The use of the word holy serves to denote that Paul intended it as an expression of Christian affection and to guard against all improper familiarity and scandal, particularly with regard to relations between the sexes, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, according to Justin Martyr, it was common for the early Christians to practice this mode of salutation within their religious assemblies. So when Paul issued this directive, it was understood in its original context And we have no right to understand it in any other way. Now, after that instruction to the church in Rome, Paul then makes a very interesting statement. The churches of Christ salute you. How can the Apostle Paul make that statement that the churches of Christ salute you? He's an individual. How can he state that the churches of Christ salute you? Well, perhaps we could understand Paul's meaning if he meant by that the church in Achaia, which is probably the church in Corinth that may have been made up of various house churches at that time. 
Could Paul have meant, however, all the churches of Asia Minor that he had planted, as one commentator suggests? It's interesting to see the various takes on this phrase. John Gill, for example, thinks that Paul means all the churches that are in Greece or in the neighborhood where Paul was writing at that time. The church father Origen thought that Paul was referring to all the churches which he had founded. What is most interesting to me is that most commentators don't even mention it, don't even comment on it. What I found most interesting, however, was a statement by John Gill that regardless of how many churches to which Paul was referring, he knew of their sincere affections and hearty goodwill to this church and the members of it. He, in their names, sent greetings to them. This, Gill says, shows the communion of churches and how they ought to wish and sincerely desire each other's welfare. Now, I want to, you to take careful note of these words. This shows the communion of churches. Now, I'm not for one minute going to try to persuade you that this text alone is the only text that is necessary to give us a basis for the idea of an association of churches. There's much more that needs to be considered. However, I do find it instructive that Paul can speak for an entire group of churches, especially in light of the fact that our confession of faith gives us its first scriptural proof, Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Now, we understand that words often evolve in their meanings. We have unfortunately seen that proliferate in our day with terms such as gay, which at one time meant lighthearted and happy, and you don't dare use the word in that sense today. Today, with so many means of mass communication, we see words change much more quickly than they ever did prior to the age of mass communication. However, before the advent of mass media, word meanings changed much more slowly. And I would suggest to you that such is the case with the word that Gill uses when he says, when he uses the term communion. John Gill was born in 1697, eight years after the publication of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. He eventually pastored the church in Horsleydown that had once been pastored by Benjamin Keach. That church later became the New Park Street Chapel and the Metropolitan Tabernacle pastored by Charles Spurgeon. Now, if we understand that Keach and the other signers of the Confession of Faith used the word communion in a particular way, then it is highly likely that Gill, not that far removed from those early uh, usages, used the word communion in the same way. Enough time would not have elapsed in that day for the word to have changed significantly in its meaning. And if that is true, as I believe it is, then Gill would have been arguing for some kind of formal association of churches as far back as the Apostle Paul. 
Now, this implies, of course, that Keach, Kiffin, Cox, and others of that era understood the word communion in the sense of a formal association of churches. Now, in his book, Edification and Beauty, Dr. Jim Renahan argues very cogently and persuasively that the word communion, as found in in chapter 26, paragraph 14, is intended purposefully to convey the idea of a formal association of churches. I'm told that one of Dr. Renahan's students told him that he had proven the point ad nauseum. Now, I'm going to be drawing heavily upon that book this morning. So heavily, in fact, I probably should ask Dr. Renahan just to come up here and deliver this lecture. But uh, there is so much of value in that book, Edification and Beauty. I mentioned it in my first lesson. I would mention it again. If you have not read it, please pick up that book and read it. It is, is to me, of inestimable value. I'm only going to touch on some of the high points of especially chapter 6 of that book so that we can see clearly that to the framers of our confession of faith, the word communion implied formal association. Now, Dr. Renahan begins that chapter by showing that the early particular Baptists were strongly committed to interchurch communion. He writes, and I quote, they held that the independence of local churches did not mean isolation and put this belief into practice by means of associations originally called general meetings. The first London Confession of 1644 was issued through the cooperative efforts of seven London churches and the political climate of the 1650s provided opportunities for several regional associations to organize and function. The ebb and flow of persecution and toleration during the uncertain days of the reigns of Charles II and James II tended to drive the churches into survival mode and thus hindered extensive involvement with others. It was not until after the accession of William and Mary in 1688 that the Baptists were truly free to hold public meetings. The leaders of the particular Baptists in London responded quickly to the new opportunity and sent out letters of invitation in which they called for a general assembly to meet in September 1689. At that meeting, they publicly endorsed what had been variously called the Assembly Confession or the Second London Confession or the 1689 Confession of Faith, end quote. Now, in the fuzzy-headed theological world of the 21st century in which we live, there is a great tendency away from specificity in our theological pronouncements so that as many views as possible can be included. We have a Rodney King approach to theology. Can't we all just get along? Consequently, most American Christians would understand communion as simply fellowship, sharing together, sitting around a campfire, singing Kumbaya. Dr. Renahan makes it very clear that such an understanding of communion is wholly inadequate to explain the usage of that word in our confession. Now, except for the first three occurrences of the word communion in our confession, each of which relate to personal communion with God, the other occurrences of them 
eight of them, relate to the doctrine of the church. The first three occurrences are found in chapter 1, where the Trinity is said to be the foundation of all our communion with God. Chapter 4, where man and woman are said to be happy in their communion with God in their pre-fall sinless estate. And then chapter 6, where by their fall, man and woman lost their communion with God. It's significant, I believe, that these usages all have covenantal implications. Adam and Eve were, of course, under the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden. Marriage is said to be a covenantal relationship in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14. All other uses of the word, however, occur in those chapters dealing with the doctrine of the church. Chapter 27 entitled Of the Communion of the Saints, is actually an explication of the duties of church membership. You will note, for example, that in paragraph 1 of chapter 27, saints, quote, have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, in an orderly way, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. And then, in paragraph 2, professing saints are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion. If the word communion simply meant fellowship, then the word communion would be redundant in that paragraph. None of us, as churchmen, would tolerate the idea that people can be a part of our church simply for fellowship without a formal commitment to that church. Now, the use of the word communion in the chapter of the confession of the Lord's Supper reflects the sense of what Dr. Renahan calls profound personal mutuality. It is the idea of a strong bond that exists between two parties and reflects the theological realities that exist in the relationship between God and his people. So as Dr. Renahan points out, when one reads chapter 26, it is very difficult to interpret the word communion as meaning only fellowship or sharing, but rather as a formal and structured approach to interchurch relationships just as one would find a formal and structured relationship in membership in a local church. Now, many of our churches, when receiving new members, ask them to actually sign a church covenant, a formal association. Now, in the writings of many of those who signed the Confession of Faith or who were active in the particular Baptist associations in England at that time, It's obvious that the word communion had strong connotations of formal and structured relationships. Hansard Knowledge uses a term with reference to membership in a church that is a true but defective church, urging members of such churches that, quote, neither did Christ blame any believers that were sound in their judgments and holy in their conversation from holding communion with those churches. In other words, from being members of those churches. 
Likewise, Hercules Collins wrote in a brief booklet entitled, Some Reasons for Separation from the Communion of the Church of England. For Collins to separate from the communion of the Church of England was not simply to no longer fellowship with people from that church, but it was to renounce its doctrines and practices and to join with a communion that followed the scriptures in truth. Now, I find it interesting that the Anglican Church today still uses the word communion to signify a group of churches in a formal and structured relationship. Just yesterday evening, uh, we went up and uh, went through Christ Church, and the lady that gave us a little tour informed us that the church was a part of the Anglican Communion. Now, she wasn't just saying that they were having fellowship with other Anglicans. No, she was saying we are part of a structured, formal relationship. Many of the American Episcopal churches that have rejected the appointment of homosexuals to positions of clerical authority have joined with the African communion of churches. Now, there are many other particular Baptist writers of the era in which our confession was written who used the term in the same way, demonstrating beyond doubt that the word communion has reference to a formal, structured relationship between churches. And not only the writings, but the actions of those churches demonstrate that to them communion meant a formal, structured relationship. By the late 1650s, several of the churches of the uh, the country had, the particular Baptist churches had formed several associations. In the records of the Midlands Association, which show the formation of the association, the churches agree to, quote, mutually acknowledge each other to be true churches of Christ, and that it is our duty to hold a close communion each to the other, as the Lord shall give opportunity and ability, endeavoring that we may all increase more and more in faith and knowledge and in all purity and holiness to the honor of our God, and it is our resolution in the strength of Christ to endeavor thus to do. When they mutually acknowledged each other to be true churches of Christ, they were doing what we do when we give commendation to a particular church. Now, the records of the London General Assembly of 1689 uses almost identical wording. Subscribed by messengers from seven particular Baptist churches, the records indicate that these seven churches do mutually acknowledge each other to be true churches of Christ and that it is their duty to hold a close communion, each with the other, according to the rule of his word, and so be helpful each to the other as God shall give opportunity and ability. And these churches are now desired to consider that they acknowledge each other and are faithfully to hold such communion with each other, with the other, and to endeavor to be helpful each to the other. End of quote. And then follows a list of five specific ways in which they may carry out their communion. And it goes beyond just fellowship. To these churches, communion meant much more than that. As Dr. Renahan observes, it was mutual recognition, support, and commitment. Now, I've only quoted from the records of two particular associations. Dr. Renahan, in his book, has done a great service to us, I believe, by providing many more quotations from association records 
individual church records, etc., to prove that to men who signed the London Confession of Faith in 1689, the word communion meant a formal, structured relationship between churches. And frankly, if you can read his chapter on associations and not be convinced of this one point, nothing I can say here in an hour will do, go, go any further to change your mind. Now, since this is what the original signers of the confession meant by the term communion, if we say that we subscribe the confession of faith, I almost said to the confession of faith, but I knew Rich Barcellus would object. (laughs) If we say that we subscribe the confession of faith, we must subscribe it as it was originally written and according to what the writers meant. We do not have the right to alter the meaning of the word communion to fit the 21st century definition of the word. To do so is dishonest. Further, to say that one subscribes the confession of faith requires then that one be part of a formal, structured association of churches. Otherwise, one's actions give the lie to one's words. Now let me insert, if I may, my thoughts concerning our recent controversy within ARBCA. If it is wrong to alter the the meaning of the word communion in the 21st century so that it means something completely different from what it meant in the 17th century, then it is equally wrong to alter the meaning of the phrase without passions to fit some 21st century idea so that it is completely different than the phrase of the 17th century. And make no doubt about it, we do know what the phrase meant in the 17th century. Sam Renahan has done a great service to us as an association and to all confessional churches with both his reader and his primer concerning impassibility. To claim to subscribe the confession of faith while holding to a different meaning than that intended by the men who wrote the confession is disingenuous at best. It's been both interesting and sad to me to see how men have distorted the meaning of the phrase without passions in our recent Arbka controversy. Some have said that God has an inner emotional life that is somehow separate from his essence. Inner emotional life? Inner as opposed to what? Outer? How can you say that there is inner, there is interior and exterior to a being who clearly declares himself to be spirit. It makes no sense. Perhaps the saddest attempt to make the confession mean something it did not mean came from one who wrote a letter explaining why he could not accept the position paper. He states, when our confession of faith declares that that God is without passions, it means he has no bodily passion, such as the need to satisfy hunger or the desire to fulfill himself sexually. When I read that statement, I was so taken aback, I thought the author must have made a mistake in his writing. I thought, surely he didn't intend to say what he said. I can't imagine where he came up with that idea. Even those who are in opposition to the position paper have never argued that that is what the confession means when it's said without passions. Even an elementary study of the confession of faith 
would enable one to understand that that is not the meaning of the phrase in the confession. And if one did agree with that statement, it would simply indicate they have not studied the pertinent literature surrounding the writing of the confession at all. That body of literature is quite large and it's readily available to any who wish to study the issue because the phrase is found in nearly all of the Reformed confessions beginning with the 39 Articles of the Church of England. Within our own church, it was our very sad responsibility as a church about two years ago to excommunicate a man who said he had come to the position that Jesus was not God. You say, how in the world can that happen? But it does. He said he believed that Jesus was the Son of God and the Savior, but that he was not God. He even said to me when objecting to our move to remove him from our membership that he could recite the Apostles' Creed without reservation. And I had to point out to him that we could not accept his definition of the phrase Son of God nor of the word Savior. We were bound to accept that meaning ascribed to those words and phrases by the orthodox creeds and confessions of the church. And it was disingenuous for him to claim that he believed Jesus was the Son of God when his definition of that phrase was different from that given to us in Holy Scripture. Now, why were the framers of our confession so concerned about their churches living in communion with one another? Well, again, as Dr. Renahan points out, they understood that the independency of local churches did not mean isolation. And frankly, I think that's a huge problem among Baptists in general today. To ensure that churches did not become isolated, especially in the years of persecution leading up to the signing of the Second London Confession, associations were formed. And though the ability to become involved in associational activities was curtailed during those years of persecution, even after toleration became more the norm, the number of particular Baptist churches initially was small enough that associational involvement was very highly valued. They did not want to be isolated from one another. Now, we should not think, however, that the reason for association was primarily pragmatic. The theological basis for association is set forth in chapter 26, paragraph 14. As each church and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ in all places and upon all occasions to further everyone within the bounds of their places and callings in the exercise of their gifts and graces, so the churches, when planted by the providence of God, so as they may enjoy opportunity and advantage for it, ought to hold communion among themselves for their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. The same reason that we need to be members of local churches is the same reason that members of local churches need to be parts of an association. Now, I mentioned previously that immediately after signing the the agreement to form a formal association, the General Assembly of 1689 listed five ways in which they saw the idea of communion being worked out among their churches. Those five ways were, number one, Excuse me. Giving advice 
in controversy, such as appeared in the controversy in Acts 15, giving toward financial needs of other churches, such as was demonstrated by the Gentile churches toward the churches in Jerusalem. Number three, in sending gifted brothers to help other churches when they expressed need of such, as was demonstrated by the church in Jerusalem, sending Barnabas to Antioch in Acts chapter 11. Number four, joint cooperation in any works of the Lord, such as mission work, church planting, etc. And number five, holding one another accountable in terms of purity of doctrine and the exercise of love and holy living. These brothers saw communion among the churches being worked out in those specific ways. Communion among the churches was not just a theoretical issue. It was for the churches of the 16th century, and it should be for us in the 21st century, a very practical issue that had its roots in the theology of the confession of faith, not mere pragmatism. Now that brings me to the final point that I want to make in this session. Not only is it critical that we understand the meaning of the word communion in our confession, it is equally critical that we understand the place of the confession in our communion, our association of churches. When we join an association of churches, we subscribe to that confession of faith to which that association holds, in our case, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. To give our word that we subscribe to the confession is a very serious matter. We are not talking about a good old boys club. That is not, this is not what is called in some circles good faith communion or subscription. We're speaking here about the validity of our word. Is our yes, yes? Is our no, no? Without the confession of faith as a basis of our communion, we degenerate into simply a group of men who enjoy being together, or not in some cases. Anyone can be a part of that fellowship. There's no real ground for inclusion or exclusion. If we truly desire to follow the confessional concept of communion between churches, there must be an objective standard that holds us together. It is not enough to say that it is the Bible that holds us together. It's not enough to say, no creed but Christ. Which Christ? That of the Jehovah's Witnesses? That of the Mormons? That of the Christ of the modalist apostolic Christian church? No, it's the confession that expresses what we believe the scripture teaches. And it is that confession that sets us apart from other communions. In the 1600s, when a church determined to join an association, they took formal action to do so. They understood that communion among the churches was far more than simply friendly relationships for fellowship. There were agreements with the standards set by the association of churches. And that is why the regular Baptist churches were not allowed into the particular Baptist association. They did not subscribe the confession. It was known that they could not and would not subscribe the confession. Associations remain strong and able 
to carry out the responsibilities as we described earlier when they are rigorous in maintaining the doctrinal standards of the association. And I might say, departure from orthodoxy often begins with the words, it's only semantics. No, don't be fooled by that. Words have meanings. One of the primary reasons for the movement away from the Westminster standards in the churches of Scotland in the mid to late 1800s was the fact that when a man was brought up on charges of teaching doctrine that was out of line with the doctrinal standards of the church, the Westminster Confession, there would often be friends and colleagues who would defend him against those trying to uphold the standards of the confession. And oftentimes they would argue that it was only semantical differences. The defense would then take the form of an argument that the confession was broad enough to countenance the heterodox view of the defendant. And instead of being an association of churches that examined the teachings from the dispassionate standpoint of the confession of faith, the Presbyteries of Scotland slowly eroded in their confessional standards because men succumbed to the power of human relationships. Now, I highly recommend to your reading the book, The Erosion of Calvinist Orthodoxy by Ian Hamilton, which chronicles the doctrinal downgrade that took place among the confessional churches of Scotland. And it shows the subjectivity that came in that destroyed the Calvinist orthodoxy. David Hall gives another example in his book, The Practice of Confessional Subscription, another book I recommend. In 1735, the Synod of the Presbyterian Church meeting in Philadelphia deliberated upon charges brought by ministers in a synod against a fellow minister by the name of Samuel Hemphill, who had been received into the synod having immigrated to the United States from Ireland just two years earlier. You've got to watch those guys from Ireland. Matthew here? Oh, there he is. All right. This uh, Samuel Hemphill had been received based upon the recommendation of his presbytery in Ireland who had ordained him after he had sworn subscription to the Westminster Standards of the Presbyterian Church. Within a year after his reception by the Synod in America, his preaching began to attract great crowds on the one hand among the general populace and also began to raise eyebrows on the other hand among the Orthodox ministers in America. And it's interesting that Hemphill's chief supporter during his trial and the man who supported him most vehemently in print was none other than that great American theologian, Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) William Barker notes that Franklin supported him because, quote, he rejoiced in Hemphill's sermons because they expressed the sort of deistic religion that he had come to hold, end quote. Now, Hemphill's views that brought about the charges of heresy against him were expressive of religion that was based upon the law of nature. No need for conversion 
of children born in a Christian home in a Christian society. A Socinian view of the atonement that denied the satisfaction of God's justice by the death of Christ. Salvation through the light of nature apart from divine revelation. And justification by faith as unnecessary for those educated and instructed in the knowledge of the Christian religion. Now, as ardently as Benjamin Franklin supported Hemphill in his views, it is quite instructive that Franklin, as Barker states it, recognized that the obstacle standing in the way of acceptance of such views in the Presbyterian Synod was the Westminster Confession of Faith. That was the obstacle that Benjamin Franklin understood kept Hemphill's views from being accepted. Truly, sometimes the children of darkness are wiser than the children of light. My brothers, it is imperative that we understand what our confession of faith teaches as understood by the original framers of our confession. To attribute 21st century words, 21st century meanings to words that were not understood to have such meaning in the 17th century is not to subscribe to that confession of faith but to subscribe to a confession of faith of our own making. All of us have been appalled that our United States Supreme Court has found within our Constitution the right for a woman to have an abortion, the right of homosexuals to be married, and they have found that right because they are not interpreting the Constitution as the original framers wrote it and understood the terms they used. They found those rights because they interpreted the Constitution according to their 20th and 21st century understanding of those terms used, such as, quote, right of privacy. Now, we live in an age that is called postmodern. And in postmodern thought, you can hold contradictory views and it not be seen as unusual. That is not the way language is to be used. Brothers and sisters, by God's grace... May we hold strongly to that confession of faith that is the basis of the communion of our churches. And may we give heed to what it tells us of the necessity of our churches to hold communion together for the mutual edification of one another. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would give to us an increase of love and edification as we live together in this association of churches. Father, we are so far from understanding all that needs to be understood in terms of how we conduct ourselves within the association of churches. But above all, would you give us the grace as we observed yesterday morning to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Father, would you... Be gracious to us in this association. Our desire is to see the name of Christ uplifted, to see you be given glory throughout all the earth. Father, bless us, we pray. Pour out your spirit upon our association that we might see the gospel truly taken to the ends of the earth.
We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one heart and soul and voice sing thy redeeming grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.